Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt. We interview philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas, including ethics, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, social and political philosophy, and many others. Today's interview is with Michael Weisberg, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. His new book, Simulation and Similarity, Using Models to Understand the World, is just out from Oxford University Press. In 1956 and 1957, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers decided to test a plan to dam up the San Francisco Bay in order to protect its water supply. They built a a one-and-a-half-acre model of the Bay Area in a warehouse with hydraulic pumps to simulate tides and river flows, and they observed the result. Their model showed what a disaster the dam plan would be. It would have turned the Bay into a polluted wasteland. In his new book, Weisberg examines the nature, development, and widespread use of models in the sciences as a means to help explain and predict natural phenomena. Weisberg looks at concrete models such as the Bay Area model, computational models, and mathematical models to argue for what is effectively a model of models in which models are interpreted structures and their relation to the part of the world they model is understood in terms of weighted feature mapping. His book systematizes and advances philosophical thinking about models and their central role in the practice of science. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Weisberg. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Glad to have you here. Really a pleasure to be with you today. Um, So we're going to be talking about your your new book, Simulation and Similarity, um, where you provide a foundation for, you know, a discussion of the kinds of models and the roles of models in science and how they relate to to reality. so one of the things that, uh, that I like to start with is just um, background in terms of, you know, yourself as, as a philosopher, how you, how you came to philosophy, um, and how you came to the areas of philosophy that you work in, and in particular to the writing uh, of this book. So I suspect I'm pretty typical in coming to philosophy through the back door, maybe the side door. I was uh, originally working uh, and very gung-ho and seriously in science and chemistry in particular. And actually, as an undergraduate, I took a a philosophy of science course, mostly to fulfill a requirement, but also because it seemed interesting. And slowly but surely, I got sucked in from there. And I guess I came to realize that some of the questions within science that were most interesting to me were ones that, as a professional scientist, you didn't have a lot of time to think about, but that philosophy of science seemed to be like a good place to spend time thinking about them. So... Little by little, I got uh, more and more involved in philosophy of science, and actually the topics of this book, Simulation and Similarity, were really the first things that had caught my attention because I was a chemist, and chemists are not especially philosophical scientists, but they do spend a lot of time talking about models and talking about idealized models and the use of multiple models, and so I always sort of wondered how that could be, how that could work. Weren't we trying to find out what the world was really like, and so I, I've, I've spent a long time thinking about that, and this book is at least one, one attempt to try to get clear on those questions that started bothering me as an undergraduate. Okay, so um, you begin the book um, by addressing the basic question, you know, what, what is a model? And you divide things into, uh, you know, you, you have three basic kinds of models, what you call the, the concrete models, the computational models, um, and the mathematical models. Um, so maybe you could describe each of these and what distinguishes them. Sure. I actually want to start by saying that although the book starts with talking about what models are, mm. if I'd love for the reader to uh, to come away with thinking that the really interesting question is is what modeling is and how it's a distinctive practice. 
And I, um, it's, it's something that I, I, if I could change the discussion in any way, that's how I'd like to change it. I really think that philosophers have spent so much time thinking about representation and different kinds of representation, and all those things are important, and I spend lots of time talking about them. But the most important thing, I think, is really the, the practice of modeling. So I'm sure we'll get there later as we talk. But let me answer your question. So three kinds of models. Um, you know, when, when you try to do philosophy of science and look at the practice of science, you always face a trade-off. So every, case, every instance of science ha has some unique features, and one can describe in, in great and loving detail so many differences between different kinds of cases. On the other hand, um, you know, that can be that can be illuminating, but it can also be limiting because part of what we're trying to do is understand how science works as a general matter. But at the same time, most philosophers of science have gone the other direction and I think been a little bit too quick to lump everything together into a single account. So you know, the very traditional literature and philosophy of science says that the model is a, a set theoretic structure or a set of trajectories in a state space or something like that. So I've tried to start in the middle and to identify three broad categories of models that seem to be ones in use in science. So the first distinction would be between concrete models and the others. So concrete models are the sorts of things that we actually build. So uh, the example people often give is, is a model airplane, but an example that I think is a lot more interesting and one that I discuss in detail in the book is the, the working hydraulic model of the San Francisco Bay. So this is a model that's literally an acre and a half and it's in a scale of 1 to 1,000 horizontally and 1 to 100 vertically. And the model reproduces the entire tidal cycle of the San Francisco Bay, the incoming ocean, the incoming rivers, and so forth. And this model was used to study um, potential interventions on the, the land use of the bay, on building dams or not building dams, on sewer outfalls and everything else. And the reason they people were able to do this was because the model had such great fidelity. But the important thing is, this is something that's an artifact. It's physically built in the world. And that really distinguishes it from the other kinds of models. So typically people distinguish concrete and mathematical, but I think in science in the 21st century, computers play such an important role and computation plays such an important role that it may be important to think a little bit about the difference among those kinds of models. So I distinguish between computational models and mathematical models. And the difference in the way I characterize them is that in a computational model, the procedure or the algorithm is what does the representational work. Whereas in a mathematical model, this is the more traditional sort of thing that philosophers talk about, something like a set of trajectories in a state space described by differential equations. So as an example of a computational model, I like to talk about Schelling's model of segregation. This is an idea of a, a very simple procedure. Do, do enough of my neighbors look like me? If not, I'll move. And that model was used by Schelling to try to explain segregation patterns. And as an example of a mathematical model, there are many, many one could choose from, but I like to talk about predator-prey relations. This is an example that um, is a model that's described by just two differential equations. So it's a, a nice thing. So again, the, the, the first difference is between whether they're physically built in the world or something abstract. And then I think we can distinguish between models where the procedure is the most important thing versus some other kind of mathematical object. Okay, so um, I do actually... Um want to get to the practice of modeling as as you as you suggest but there's a there's just sort of basic background on your view of of all these models um as that that I would like to um uh to have out there um so you you describe you characterize them all as interpreted structures right so there's a structure and there's an interpretation um and uh you also you know say that you know all the the different models can have different sorts of this, different descriptions right you can ex, you can describe say a concrete model in mathematical terms or you, or a computational model and um so maybe you could say something about this um this framework of you know of interpreted structures as the the sort of the general nature of of any of these models and and also what you know what are the elements of the interpretation and what and I suppose what constrains interpretations. Sure. I, I, I mean, you also mentioned another piece, which I think I should say something about, and that's the difference between the model and how we describe the model. Mm -hmm. And that actually really, that, 
that distinction between the model and what I call model description, I really owe to Ron Geary. So I think Ron Geary's work from the it's actually now from the, the 80s, so it's a, it's, it's a while back, but it's really, I think, got philosophers thinking much more seriously about the variety of different kinds of models. And one of the things that he liked to emphasize was that the same model can be described in many different ways. So it can be described with, diff- with equations, but also different kinds of equations. It can be described with diagrams. It can be described in words and so forth. So we should understand the relationship between the description and the model as uh, at least many to one, I actually think it's many to many. But those, but we shouldn't just. But we should also understand that the model and the description aren't the same thing. So the equation is really not the model. It's what the equation describes as the model. But you asked about interpretation. So the way th- this is, I think, something that distinguishes the view I try to develop from another pop- a very popular strand in philosophy of science right now of uh, the sort of new structural realism. So people like. James Ladyman and Stephen French. And what I think is that the, the kinds of structures that they talk about, they're especially interested in mathematical structures. I've also you know, mentioned computational structures and concrete structures. These are important and the core of the model, but I think that they're not sufficient to have, it's not a sufficient description of, of the representational depth of models, and that we need to, on top of that structure, add an interpretation. And the interpretations can change through more research. They can change through time. One structure can be uh, barred into a new domain and given a new interpretation and so forth. So I think that um, this interpretation plays an absolutely essential role. And it has a couple of different elements. So one of the, kind of, one of the elements of it is what I call the assignment. And that's simply saying to each part of the structure, what is it meant to denote? in some target system. So, for example, in the San Francisco Bay model, it looks a lot like the Bay physically because it's a scale model, but nevertheless, I mean, there's something like a 14.9-minute tidal cycle in the Bay model, and that tidal cycle has to be said to denote the actual tidal cycle, which, of course, takes half a day in the real Bay. Mm. Uh, A more abstract model, like in a a computational model like Schelling's model of segregation. So we see a grid laid out, and the grid has you know different colored dots on it, and those dots have to be assigned to individual people, or they have to be assigned to kind of preferences of some sort. The grid structure has to be mapped onto a city somehow, or or a kind of imagined city. And so that that interpretive step, I think, is absolutely essential to understanding the way that models can represent. But I also think there's a couple of other parts um, of the interpretation that are essential. So one is um, an idea that actually comes from the earliest philosophical writing on models in the, from Pat Supi's, and that's what I call the um, model's intended scope. I think he used a similar term. And the idea is that there'll be lots of parts of the structure that are not relevant to the real target. So if there are negative values, say, of populations, or there are non-integer values of populations, Um, those would be sort of thought to be not included in in the scope of what the model is meant to denote. And similarly, there may be things that are, we know are in the target that the model is just silent about. So those things have to be excluded as well. And then I also think that there, that part of the interpretation that the scientist or the community of scientists has to the model are some set of standards by which the model are evaluated. So I call these the fidelity criteria. And so that, this is really important because in some domains of science, we're working with an incredibly simple model to try to tell us something about a very, very complex system, like, say, using something like a predator-prey model to describe a disease outbreak. So obviously, the model is not meant to be treated as a full description in a lot of detail, extremely precise and accurate. It's just meant to tell us some bit about some part of a system at some degree of approximation. So the community has to decide how the model is going to be Evaluated. What's the standard that's going to be used? And I think this is the last component of the interpretation. Okay, so um, a couple couple of things there I wanted to to pick up on. Um, one was one was, you know, this distinction between um, the the model and its its description. And you and you said that you know the equations, you know, to talk about mathematical mathematical models in particular, you know, the equations are not the model. Um, the model is is what they describe. Right, mm-hmm. um, but in in the case of mathematical models, of course, that's that's 
you know, what, what do they describe, right? I mean, with a concrete model, it's kind of easier to understand the, you know, there's the model is right there in front of you, right? Um, on the one hand model and the other or something like that. Yeah. And, and so, um, I mean, you do discuss, uh, fictionalist views, right. Of mathematical models. So maybe, maybe that's where, uh, where this question kind of comes in. If, if the equations, you know, in a mathematical model are not the model, but what they describe is the model. Well, what, what is it that they describe? Okay, so, I mean, let, let me start off by saying I, I really try to steer clear of the actual ontology of mathematics. So I just sort of, I, I try to speak at the level that uh, I'll tell you about the ontology of models, and then the, we're going to, hopefully the metaphysicians can tell us about the ontology of mathematics itself. Mm-hmm. But the distinction I just want to make is something like the distinction we make between sentences and propositions. So that one's the sort of language-independent content, and one is the content described in a language. Mm-hmm. So in the case of, say, the Lotka-Volterra model, that where the description are two differential equations, the idea is that the mathematical object would be something like a trajectory space. So it would be some. So this. So there'd be a state space, which would be a space where the dimensions correspond to different uh, physical properties that the model uh, denotes and that the points in that space would correspond to states that the system could be in. Mm-hmm. Some of those states would be um, allowable and some of them wouldn't, and there'd be, if there's a time dimension, there would be a, a set of vectors that would connect the points and say that these are the possible ways that the system could evolve. So it's something like that space, in the case of a, you know, a dynamical model described by differential equations, that, uh, that I'm talking about. Now, what that space ultimately is, can mm-hmm. we think of it, should we think be platonists or should we have some kind of uh, uh, fictionless view about that. I wish I knew, but I, mm-hmm. what I'd like to do for this account is really just try to say, we need to make that distinction, at least to make sense of, of this practice of science, to recognize that the same model can be described in different ways, and I think this is you know, really essential. Sometimes what looks like a disagreement about model is actually a disagreement about what's being described, and so I think these distinctions are important. Okay, so... Um... And then another question I had was uh, with the idea of interpretations. Um, uh, I think at one point, you know, there's the question of whether there are correct or incorrect interpretations or if they're just less, some of them are just less useful. They're just not used in the practice of sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Is it ever incorrect to say that anything can be a model of anything? So it's a very interesting uh, question. I mean, there's some sense in which it's true that everything can be a model of anything, but I think that's kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of very glib way of thinking about this in that the, some things can be a model of something else, but in an incredibly uninformative way. So I think if you think about the, the Bay model of the, that's trying to represent the San Francisco Bay versus, um, you know, here's two other possibilities. So a bathtub could represent the San Francisco Bay because the Bay model kind of looks like a bathtub. It's just with a lot more, it's a lot more complicated and maybe, you know, a um, water in my coffee cup could represent the Bay. So I think there's a sense in which we can construct a, we can, we can apply the picture that I've developed and, and try to talk about how each part of a coffee cup or each part of the bathtub could describe the San Francisco Bay. But we'd find that the fidelity was so low that um, to say this would be, um, would be somewhat, I don't know, would, would not be a very helpful, wouldn't, I guess it would just wouldn't be a very helpful way to think about it. This model wouldn't be very informative. So I think what we could try to have an account of, and I, I think I gesture at this in the book, but don't have a lot of details, is just talk about the representational capacity of different kinds of structures and to say that we can start to see they need to have, I mean, the way I like to think of it is how many moving parts do they have that can be mapped on from the model onto the target? And one of the really nice things about mathematical models are that they, there's a lot of representational capacity. So if you're working with differential equations, you can add new terms, you can add new variables, and start to get more parts of the structure that can be mapped onto the target. But when you're dealing with concrete things, the, the structure has usually a finite and small number of parts. And the Bay model is so impressive in that it's so large and so detailed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can anything model anything else? I think the answer has got to be yes, but only a kind of philosopher's yes. No one, no one else would care, I right. think. 
That's a, that's a, a good way to think about it. Um, awesome. Yes, we should, <laughs> should get this term. Um, well, let's. Uh, you, you mentioned the practices of, of modeling uh, a number of times. So, um, you know, I do want to to get to that. How how the models are are used. I mean, sort of setting aside, in a sense, the the ontological question. You know, how they're used to represent uh, what they're modeling, um, and how they're used in in explanation and predicting and so forth. Um, so let me let me just. Um, let me just ask about um, idealization. Let me start with that. Um, so this is a really important feature, obviously, of models. Um, and maybe you can go into a bit about about the role of idealization and then how you distinguish um, idealization from, you know, say, mere abstraction or simplification and then also distortion. Okay. Um, so are you... Are you you're wondering exactly how idealization is? Yeah, uh, how it works. How, how it works. Okay, yeah. sure. So, idealization. The way I think of it is, idealization is a kind of distortion with respect to some target. So, if you just looked in a model and you just said, "Is this model idealized?" I don't think that that question can really be assessed. So, you have to say, um, "I have this model." Here's this target in the world that I'm interested in. So here's the San Francisco Bay model. Here's the San Francisco Bay. And then you say, is this model idealized with respect to the target? And how is it idealized with respect to this target? And I think, of course, in almost every case you could imagine, the answer is going to be yes. And you can start to de- describe the various sorts of ways. So to me, what's really interesting about idealization, besides that it's pervasive, is that they're really different kinds of idealization. So there's a sort of idealization that you can see a systematic effort to try to undo and to erase. So in the case of the San Francisco Bay model, there was a huge amount of effort made to calibrate the model so that its predictions were really, really accurate. Now, of course, they couldn't help the fact that the model's ultimately made out of concrete as opposed to what the bay is made out of, rock and water and so forth. But in terms of the all the, th- all the properties of the model they were most interested in, the way that the tidal cycle was represented, the way that the salinity, because you have fresh water and salt water meeting each other, so exactly where the meeting happens and how that fluctuates through the day, they spent something like a, a year and a half calibrating the model so as to remove these, uh, so as to make the model more and more accurate and to sort of kick away these idealizations, at least in those domains. But there are other parts of science, I think, where the idealization just seems permanent and that people work with, they're often called minimalist models because they see them as highly explanatory. So th- those are the sorts of differences that I'm, I'm interested in. And I think some of it has to do with uh, how complex the system is. Some of it has to do with what you want the model to be used for. Some of it has to do with what kind of resources you have at your disposal in terms of the data that you can acquire, the computational power that you might have and so forth. Um, did you, I guess you asked about how idealization isn't just approximation? Uh, abstraction or simplification. Oh, it's just abstraction, sure. So a distinction a lot of people like to make is between abstraction as, as omission and idealization as distortion. Mm-hmm. So the sort of, it's, this is a, it's quite common in the literature. I think maybe Cartwright is the one that first started speaking in this way, but the idea being you can be silent on something without distorting but if you say something that's false, that's a that's a kind of distortion. And so the one thing is idealization, the other is abstraction. Abstraction is just omission. And I think that this is basically right, but I worry that in a representation, when you omit something, you can omit something that has a distorting effect or not. So uh, in a dynamical model, if you omit some very, very important feature of the mo- of a system in your model something that actually doesn't just, it's not just something you can be vague about, but something that actually describes how the system changes through time. Like, for example, in a, in a pendulum, if you just ignore friction, then your model will say that the pendulum would go forever. So I think, so you could call that an abstraction in that it's, you know, you merely have omitted friction, but I think in a case like that, you've actually distorted the model with respect to the target because now it says something that's really untrue that the model will go forever. So I think that there's a more complicated relationship. Nevertheless, I think the basic idea that there's a difference between omission and between not omission, not omitting something, but actually saying something that's less true. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reason. That's a good distinction. 
when you, I mean, I, I suppose these these issues come really come to the fore with um, with the non concrete ones, especially mm-hmm. the the mathematical models, right? Um, and you use the example of the uh, the predator prey equations, the Latke Volterra, um, uh, which which are very you know to a, pair, a couple you know pair of differential equations uh, that um, uh, that purport to describe you know what's going on in a particular environment you know between two populations you know predator and prey. Now that's you know. That's extremely idealized or distorted or both. I'm not quite sure what. Um, so, like, to, to, so we can we can think about this case for a while. So, yeah, um, there could be a situation I think where where the credit where the Locke Volterra equation described things extremely well in that it said that the the only effect of the that's driving the um, predator population is its intrinsic growth and death rate and the availability of food in the in the prey there could be such a situation if that were the case then i think that that model you know we would say this is really good it's not idealized at all it's still a very abstract model in that it's it doesn't describe many aspects of the of any real animals that were preying on another you know any one species preying on another species or one population preying on another but it could be quite accurate and have very few distortions in it if that dynamic is what was really driving the population. But in, um, I think in many real systems, what actually is driving population dynamics, even at that level, even just talking about one population, the other Mm -hmm. uh, is going to have a lot of other important factors, things like spatial distributions or things like uh, the age, the, the actual distribution of ages or you might have some third species that's involved, like a predator for the predator, or you might have a competitor for the prey, or there might be some limiting resource for the, the prey. So if the prey are herbivores, there needs to be some plants around for them to eat. If the plants die, that will have an effect on the predators. So I think in you know in many real cases where we'd imagine applying that model, we'd see that model as um, quite distorted with respect to the environment. But you know, again, there's this... I think that the model itself, you wouldn't want to say that the model is idealized in the abstract. It's idealized only relative to some particular system we wanted to apply it to. Okay. Um, so what, one of the issues that's you know, kind of coming in the background, I think, is, is um, how the models are used to, to explain or, or not explain. Um, and I, I guess this is sort of somewhat of a... Um, Controversial issue, although, although perhaps you don't you don't agree. Um, uh, which is, uh, do do models explain, or are they, or do they have a different role um, in in terms of uh, explaining the phenomena that they are uh, representing or being applied to? Um, and let, let me just you know to to make that a little bit more concrete. You, one of the you know, the computational model, right, that you use, uh, Thomas Schelling's model of, of segregation, right, where, you know, if if the individuals in a population have only a, what is it, 30, 30%, I think, preference for people that look like them, yeah. uh, then, uh, you know, uh, anything, uh, then, then, you know, people will naturally, just just by the dynamics of the situation, will end up being in a segregated uh uh, um, society, even even though nobody uh, is particularly looking to segregate, um, and his model, uh, you know, is a very you can say that it, it describes what's going on, say in in Philadelphia, right, or or any um, segregated city. Um, but then there's this sort of separate question of you know, does it really does it just describe it, or does it explain it? Right. So that's the the so the general issue is just what how models are used uh, in relation to the scientific project of explaining the phenomena that are being modeled. Sure. So I think um, models by themselves can't be explanations by themselves, but I think that they certainly figure into explanations, and we often think of models as being highly explanatory. And in fact, uh, you know, some kinds of models. People will say, well, this is not 
great for making predictions, but it really explains the phenomenon. And I think people often say that when they believe that their model has really isolated some absolutely essential cause that's driving the way that the system behaves. So the Schelling case is really interesting. So I think it's uh, quite controversial among social scientists whether the Schelling segregation dynamic actually explains segregation in cities. I think what, what we could do with that model is say, here's a possible explanation. The possible explanation is, um, as you mentioned, small preferences for having neighbors who look like me or have similar interests to me or speak the same language or whatever the particular case is could actually, those effects really magnify and can actually lead to massive segregation. Now, whether that's actually the explanation, I think definitely involves looking at the world and trying to figure out, is that what's happening? But what's interesting is that that model could potentially isolate some particular kind of uh, cause and then one can go and find out, is that one actually operating the world? Another thing that they can do um, is answer a how possibly question or sort of if someone says it's absolutely possible for a, a city to segregate unless people are massively racist, something that Schelling's model could definitely do is say, no, a city could still segregate even if people have only small preferences for having uh, like neighbors. So I think that's the sorts of things that the model could do. But to really uh, to more directly answer your question, I do think that a model could be explanatory. And I think that if it were the case that the the shelling dynamic was at play in, say, the city of Philadelphia or the city of Pittsburgh, where you are right now, then the model would be bigger into that explanation. But I don't think you can often simply do the explanation by making a model. You need to do a lot more. You need to either find out what the world's really like, or you need to know that the phenomenon in the model is so robust that that it would that it would override almost anything else happening. So I think you can maybe explain why there are no perpetual motion machines by building a model, but it'd be much harder to explain something about uh, segregation or, or many other things in biology or the social sciences. Um, so um, you just mentioned minimal models um, and when you discuss them about how they, they, such models try to capture sort of core causal factors in a, in sure. a particular phenomenon. Um mm-hmm. And um, so I'm just wondering, that, so you have this model of models in which you've got you know, the structure and then the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and scientists and some you know, people who work with the, you know, particularly with mathematical models, with, with differential equations, right, or computational models, um, they'll often say things like, you know, that this explains and so forth. Um, and this will get other people upset because they'll say, well, you know, there's, there's nothing causal uh, in an equation, right? You, that, it's just a, a mathematical relationship, and you have to kind of interpret it somehow, add, add in that, you know, it's representing causal factors and so forth. Um, um, and so I'm just wondering if, if your two-part, you know, sort of basic model of models um, – in a sense, sort of is is skirting that or or entering that particular debate between those who think that mathematical models don't explain because they're not causal, um, and those that that do that that say well they're explanatory. Does does your view, uh, in a sense, say well they explain in so far as there's an interpretation of what's going on um, that is intended, you know, by the modeler um, as a as a representation of, of causal features? So, I mean, I think the answer is yes. So let me, but let me, let me start back a little bit at the beginning. So the, you said there's sort of two accusations that can be made against modelers. One is um, that they're, that they haven't really explained anything because you need to actually do empirical work to explain. And then the other is that models can't be Causal and explanation requires uh, looking for causes. So um, on the first one, I mean, some of that's, I, I suspect, just the the standard debates between experimentalists and theorists, and that this transcends many domains, not just thinking about modeling. But, um, and there's, of course, I mean, I'm some kind of empiricist, I suppose, and do think that ultimately our knowledge about the world comes from doing experiments and not just from building models. Nevertheless, I think... Uh, you know, models are 
even even though I emphasize the autonomy of models from background theory, the fact that models can be constructed with our, our kind of basic and low-level understanding of the way that the world works and not necessarily our detailed empirical investigation, I think that models can represent causes and that models can therefore figure into even causal explanations or they can help us with causal explanations. So the question you really posed is, well, how can a bit of mathematics have any kind of causal features? So one thing to just say is, of course, a huge, as, I, as I know you know, working in cognitive science, a huge growth industry is thinking about um, causal modeling and really what kinds of mathematical structures are the best ones to represent causal inferences, uh, the extraction of causal structures from data, cognitive causal judgments, and so forth. So I think that the idea that mathematics couldn't represent causes uh, seems to be just, you know, I think that that is not correct. But the question is, can things like models based on differential equations uh, can uh, show uh, causal features? So on the one hand, it doesn't look like it. I mean, they have, they tell you how variables change through time. But the already to talk about them as, as variables having meaning and time, I think, shows that we start to interpret things, start to put an interpretation onto these structures. And as you say, I think it's the, it's the interpretation that actually does things like add a causal direction. So in the case of the Lotka-Volterra model, it's a sort of funny case because we have causal arrows uh, in a loop. We have predators having certain causal relations to prey and prey having certain causal relations to predators. And then we have time marching forward. Um, but I think we can still do that. I mean, we, we say that this part of the equation represents prey capture by predators. Well, prey capture seems to me a high-level description of a causal process. And if we think that prey capture is something that is driving the dynamics of a population, we've interpreted the model as having that, as that's what this you know, term in the equation actually means. And that's what this, uh, this aspect of the trajectory space is actually what's representing, then I think that the model uh, can be causal. But as you say, it's the mathematical object itself doesn't have causal structure, nor does it have any representational capacity, really. I mean, it does in a very, very abstract sense. So it's a lot of work is being done by this interpretation, what gets called in both the construal. Right. Um, so let, let me ask another sort of direct question on the same same topic. What what would you say is the relationship between um, explanation, the you know, using a model, an interpreted model, um, and and mechanistic explanation? That's mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great question. So I think that there can be certainly there could be mechanistic models, and I think that although a lot of the literature nowadays about mechanism is really focused on mechanisms in the world, a lot of what on the theoretical side of the science, people work with our models of mechanisms. So, uh, and indeed, even a lot of what gets called mechanisms in the world, when you actually look at the nitty gritty work that scientists are doing, they do have things like uh, maybe call them low level models or something like that. But I mean, they're not working directly with the mechanism. They're often abstracting away certain features and thinking about something model like. But I, I don't. I guess I'm pretty open about, I think all kinds of things can play explanatory roles. I think we have equilibrium explanations in science. We might even have completely non-causal explanations. Who knows? Um, there seem to be some candidates for that. But I think that insofar as mechanisms are doing the explaining, we're often building models of those mechanisms. I, I would th- the uh, the Bay model, in fact, seems to be kind of like a, a mechanistic sure model. And, and another great example of this uh, that Mary Morgan talks about in her recent book is the there's a hydraulic model of the British economy built by some Keynesian economists. And uh, so it models, models the, the flow of money as water, huh. and like tax rates as the, as the tightening or loosening valve. So I think that's, that's clearly a mechanistic, I mean, it's, it's describing a mechanism in this you know, sort of interesting hydraulic way. So there's, there was another recent paper I saw that was saying that there are every combination, you can have mechanistic models of non-mechanistic processes, uh, non-mechanistic models of mechanistic processes, so something like you might think that a couple differential equations are a bit like that, because clearly there's a mechanism of, um, there can be me- mechanisms like individual animals eating other individual animals, but if we uh, if we describe it at a high level with population-level equations, we haven't really given the mechanism. So I think that this is, this right. is a really ripe area, actually, for people to explore. 
that's that's really interesting a hydraulic model of the flow of money that's, yes that, that's, I'll definitely check that out well this is um uh this sort of raises the you know the sort of the final large issue that you that you talk about in the book which is um I mean, it's it's throughout the book. I shouldn't just say at the end, but um, the issue of you know how the models relate to the phenomena that they're being developed to model. Um, you're, you're not going to call it the heretical view that you develop in the book. Like <laughs> <many other things. laughs> um, well, let's uh, you call it the weighted feature mapping view. Um, uh, and uh, so why don't why don't we start with that? I mean, how I I, I think that the you know, there there seems to be a really a very interesting sense in which people uh, are taking the idea of the flow of money, uh, in some sense literally, and saying, "Well, let's you know, let's see how this flows, and you know, see what we can develop from that." I mean, I I don't know that particular uh, model that you just described, but I find it it's really interesting how uh, there you've got one structure that is you know, I mean, water flow and you're um, you're using it to model something that is presumably completely distinct, but I guess at some level of explanation of sorry of uh, of description, uh, there's a sort of structural similarity there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, of course, is the the issue of how the model relates to the phenomenon. Um, so maybe you could tell us a bit about your your view on that, which you call the weighted feature mapping view. Sure, yeah, I'd love to. So the, um, the book's called Simulation and Similarity, and the similarity is uh, referring to this huge question, which is, in virtue of what can models represent their targets? And the, the reason that this is such an issue is because for, the, many of the, for much of the reason we've discussed already, we know that most of the time models are idealized or abstract relative to their targets. So if that's the case, then... Things like the traditional notions of truth that we were, were the desirable features of our uh, scientific theories, that's just not going to apply and not going to have uh, in a large explanatory role. So the literature about modeling has sort of suggested two solutions to this problem. There are the, the dominant view is a view where we take the tools from logic and specifically from model theory and try to apply them to this sort of case. And so that, that view, many people would say that a model ought to be isomorphic to its target. Then there was a sort of minority view that you see defended by Ron Geary, Nancy Cartwright to some extent, and in uh, a slightly different context by Mara Hesse. In talk, and that's the view that models should be similar to their targets right. or have analogous features to their targets. So the nice thing about the first view is that we have some tools. The nice thing about the second view is it looks like how scientists talk about their models. They say that, oh, well, this model, you know, it's okay. It's, it's similar in these respects and not similar in those respects. So I've always been attracted to the similarity view, but I thought that we could use an actual account of what that was. So the weighted feature matching is an attempt to try to say more carefully what similarity amounts to. So, um, the, it really starts actually from ideas uh, in the work of Amos Tversky. And Tversky was interested in how ordinary people make similarity judgments. So that the, there's a literature in psychology about uh, similarity judgments. And his model of similarity uh, judgments wasn't really meant to describe how science works, but really how people think about similarity. I co-opted his view for a different purpose, which is regardless of how people think about similarity, we need some way of trying to quantify is not the right word, but something like quantify the ways that models and targets can be like each other and thinking about similarity, something that can come in degrees. So roughly speaking, the view is this, that a model and its target are similar to the extent to which they share features and to the, and not to the extent to which they don't. So the, there's an equation, a set theoretic equation for this, that basically gives you points, so to speak, for sharing features and takes away points, so to speak, for uh, not sharing features. Mm-hmm. But really to make this work, one has to, I think that context is really essential here. And what I was mentioning before is the f- fidelity criteria are really important here. So I think that this all starts from thinking about background theory, thinking about what we know are important, those are the features that we're going to look at in the first place. 
and then starting to think about weights on those features. So it's not just the features that the model and the target share, it's the important features that the models and the target share, where importance ideally is told to you by some other part of science, or if not, then by empirical research, or if not by kind of community consensus, and it's something that can, can change through time. So in the case of the Bay model, or the model of the British economy, we know quite a lot about fluid mechanics, and we know that certain features are going to be really essential to establishing uh, the similarity relationship. It's interesting that um, it was completely unknown to me, maybe known to other philosophers of science, engineers actually have a whole doctrine of what they call similitude. So they have theories of model target similarity, especially for physical models, and especially ones that have hydrodynamic uh, properties to them. And they really are tied to these, what well, we know from fluid mechanics, that certain kinds of properties of the system are the essential ones. Get those right, and you'll have a great match between the model and the target. Mm-hmm. So kind of to make, a lot, to make this uh, a long, much longer story than I've even given shorter, the idea is that we, we, it's feature matching, but it's feature matching that where the theoretical or scientific context actually determines which are the most important features. And that's kind of ultimately what makes sense of sort of this observation of theory that it's similarity in certain respects and degrees between model and target that account for the representational power of the model. So the, I mean, it is often, often said in, in philosophical texts that, you know, well, any two things are, are similar, right, in some respect. Um, and I guess you associate that, that skeptical view with, with Quine, you know, rightly so. Um, um, and so uh, are, is, the, is the idea that, well, yes, similarity to any two things can be similar in some, in some respect or other, um, but that the actual sort of, I don't know, practices or preferences or um, uh, the, the practical aspects of science will... You sort of weight the, the the similarity relationships that are important from those that are not, and and that's sufficient to kind of get over the skepticism about you know the ubiquity of similarity. Basically, yes. Um, I don't know that I would call it just the practical part. Although the practical part plays a role, it's also the I mean, it's the scientific part of science. It's empirical discoveries. It's the development of theories, but. Yeah, Quine and Goodman, I mean, Goodman even, you know, much more aggressively than Quine, sort of declares similarity dead mm-hmm. and calls it an imposter and a fraud. Right. He's, he's thinking about the appeals to similarity to make sense of the, of the notion of representation in general. And, you know, he has, he, he certainly has a point, but I think all of the, the people that have wanted to take similarity seriously in um, this context all are perfectly happy to say it's going to be similarity in certain respects. Once you say in certain respects, uh, we, we lose this, everything is similar to everything else, because that might be true. And you can always find a respect in which any two things are more similar to each other than the third. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, this is something perhaps we can pursue another day. Um, it would be very interesting to think, to go back to think about this in cognitive science. I mean, it's not that many cognitive scientists would say, no, look, we make similarity judgments all the time. Big Bird teaches similarity judgments to children on Sesame Street every day. It's part of, you know, children that are having language development trouble. Their speech and language pathologist works with them on, they call it same indifference, but they mean similar and, and lot similar. So we do it all the time. But I think in, in science, it, it's some, some of it's, it's definitely a context dependent thing. Some of the context is set by the sort of local research goals. Some of it's set by background theories. And, you know, in cases like the Bay model, it's extremely well-confirmed background theories, like the theory of fluid mechanics. So I, I really think philosophers, there may be reasons to reject my account or accounts of similarity here, but to reject them for Quine and Goodman's reasons, I think, would be a mistake. So I, I hope that we can we can fix that, maybe in cognitive science, too. Um, well, I mean, bringing up the cognitive science aspect... Um... I mean, another aspect of the the critique of of similarity is is not just you know the the ubiquity, but but also the psychology of it. The the I mean, as you, you began with Tversky, um, and his and and judgments of similitude, which uh, of similarity, which which is a, a psychological feature. Um, you know, it's like what we're trying to be similar, right? Um, and so the question is: this does this 
Um, how do you deal with this, um, you know, this, I don't know, threat or, or critique that, you know, by resting on similarity, you're somehow making this modeling, the models via the interpretation or the relations of similarity that are being set up, somehow depend, mind-dependent in some, you know, pernicious or bad way? Is it, does, it, does it make modeling, you know, basically psychological in a way that is, you know, that, that we don't want? So I guess, I mean, I, I'm not sure that would be so bad, um, <laughs> but the, uh, I think that it's, it's, but it's, so I definitely think something like, we, we want something more than just everybody can have their own uh, view about what models are good models, so that's certainly something to be avoided, uh-huh. but I think that there is, there is a long way between saying that similarity is context-free and depends on context and saying that, you know, it's completely subjective. And in particular, I, you know, I, I don't, other than to say that communities set, communities set standards about construals and scientific research yields background theories that can start giving weights to features. I think, I mean, those are the kinds of things I've said so far, but this is certainly a topic that, that needs a lot of exploration. But I definitely, you know, I think that we want something like intersubjective agreement, but that's not going to get us to there is a completely objective context that can be specified, you know, forever. I think too much depends on where science is at a particular time. But, you know, that's why we're, these models are, are, are things that change. And sometimes we say, well, this model was good enough 30 years ago, but we can do a lot better today. And I think it's really, I think that this is a feature, not a bug. If it turned into a completely subjective thing where every individual scientist could have an completely equal uh, stick, I don't know, stick is the wrong word, a completely equal, uh, their judgment was counted equally and they're all different, that would be a problem. But if it's, the community thinks this at this time, but as science progresses 20 years from now, a model like Lactica Volterra that played an important role in 1930s, 1940s ecology plays much less of a role in 2013, that seems to be progress. Okay. One of the things that um, also you, you didn't really get into, although you mentioned it um, just now, was um, the in the background of sort of Mary Hess's work in analogy. And and in her work, she you know she distinguishes between you know the positive analogy, you know the 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 things that are that are similar, the negative analogy, the things that are that are not similar, and then the neutral analogy. And in in her framework. Um, uh, the use the the use of of analogy in science is you know is because it's got all this room to to grow uh, in terms of not just establishing uh, initial similarity relationships, uh, also in terms of what it suggests in terms of developing uh, developing features of the model that you hadn't thought of at first when you were initially. Um, when you were initially developing the model, you, you don't go into that so much. But I was wondering if maybe you might um, say, say something about how your view of models, um, what role it, what role models have given your view of models in terms of the development of um, of a science. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you asked this, and actually, it, it is a regret of mine that that I don't have. I didn't really spend much time on Hesse in the book, other than just a few mentions. But um, I think that when, when you talk to people about modeling, or about maybe even more more so when you talk to them about scientific concepts, things that are that are ideas that haven't quite yet been developed, scientists who have never read Hesse sort of start to sound like Hesse, and they talk about things like neutral analogies. You know, we we like that this concept's vague because we don't know yet exactly where, where, what its domain of applicability is. And we think this is a good thing. One of the things I work on uh, besides modeling is the chemical bond. And I, I often hear this from chemists. It, it's good that the concept's fuzzy around the edges. We like that. Um, the thing, my account of the similarity relation was meant really in the first instance as what the model and the target, what's the relation between them? And it isn't so much about how we assess that relation or what we do with that relation or anything else like that. In some sense, even though it depends on the context and it depends on knowledge in the scientific community, there is a sense in which that similarity relation may not be something 
that's explicitly represented by anybody on paper or in their minds. Whereas Hess is really thinking about how does inquiry pro- progress? And she's thinking, well, it's really useful that we can say, well, we know that these are the positive analogies, these are the negative ones, and we do not yet know about these other things. So, you know, I think that seems to be totally right on and often seems, people often say, well, let's take this model that was developed in this other domain and see what we can do with it. Can it give us any insight in this other place? Sometimes that when that's really successful and gets published with a whole new interpretation of the model, sometimes it just gets tossed. Sometimes it's a useful aid for thinking, but that, you know, it's always sort of in the background, but never made explicit. And I think you see all of these kinds of things and it would be, be really great to, uh, to think about them smart. One of the problems in doing it, of course, is that much of this is not published. So you have to we need we need to work more closely with sociologists of science to really learn some of these things. I think. Yeah, um, I think we have we're getting towards the end here. Um, w- one of the things that you uh, discuss at the at the very end, you sort of close with a, a discussion of, of of the practice of of robustness analysis mm-hmm. um, um, and following Levins, Richard Levins. You argue that uh, the core of this is the search for robust theorems. So maybe you can uh, give us a view of, of what of what's going on in robustness analysis. Sure. So we we spent a lot of time already talking about idealization, and you know I also mentioned that at, at various points that this is this is a whole sort of another way of thinking about what scientists are supposed to be doing and representing in the world. That in a, in a very traditional view, the idea is to write down true laws of nature, and when we're talking about modeling, we're often saying, well, I want to make a model that, that's distorted, but nevertheless informative in certain ways. So the question becomes, well, how, how do we use models that we know are false, idealized models, as a reliable guide to intervention for explanation, for making predictions, and so forth? And as far as I know, the best idea that anyone's ever had for this, and I shouldn't put it in such a hedged way, I think this is a wonderful idea. It's, to me, one of the most inspiring ideas I've ever read is this idea of robustness analysis mostly associated with Levin's and that he initiated it, but uh, Bill Wimsett really is the one, I think, that taught philosophers about it. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you, what, you, what you should never do is believe any of your models. You should always assume that your models are distorted pictures, but nevertheless that somehow all of your models together can start to tell you what the world is really like. And the procedure goes something like this. You have a bunch of models that have the same target. They each make different kinds of idealizing assumptions, and we sort of look for areas of overlap between them. So when a whole bunch of different models, despite their different assumptions and despite their different distortions, tell you the same sort of thing, we have what Levins calls a robust theorem, meaning some robust description of some behavior, and we start to have a much greater confidence that we'll find that thing out in the world. And I think that that's... That is really what scientists try to do when they're working with highly idealized models. One way is to try to make them less idealized through time, but when the phenomena are super complicated, each one seems very partial. And so there's some kind of overlapping mosaic that they create with their models, not believing any particular one, but somehow believing the, the intersection of them. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is to explain how this fits into this uh, broader picture of using idealized models that are similar to their targets then using robustness to get a handle on what's the essential part of the models, what do we, what's reliable, and what's the what's just introduced by the distortions that we've put into our models. And I, you know, I think that this is this is a key part of the equation here. Um, okay, so um, let me just ask what uh, where you plan to go next with this. Are you going to pursue you know some of the issues that w- that you didn't get to touch on in this book? Um, in further work, or are you going off in another direction entirely? Well, you've you've definitely inspired me to think about Hesse some more. But um, what I've the the next piece that I've been already working on is actually something well something analogous to confirmation theory. So I think you can't really confirm a model that you know is false because confirmation is usually about using evidence to find out that a hypothesis is true or assessing the probability that a hypothesis is true, but we need something like that for idealized models. So we need some way of saying something about how reliable they are. So I've been working on a project to try to say something about that. So I, I, I use the term that scientists do, model validation. So what, 
what's what is the philosophical underpinnings of model validation? I can, you know, I think if you look in textbooks of, about modeling, they'll often give you procedures, how to bring data to bear, how to use statistics and so forth. I think one role of, of a philosopher of science here is to try to do something like say what it is that we're trying to do. We're obviously not trying to find out that the model is true, but I think what we're trying to do is something like what robustness analysis is doing, saying what part of the model do we think is reliable under what sort of circumstances. And that's that's where I want to take this piece of my work next. I hope to have a chance to talk to you about it sometime. Okay. Well, um, I think that, that about does this particular um, interview. Um, uh, is there any, any other features that you wanted to bring up about the that you talk about that we didn't get to? I think we're well, I think I think that there's. Uh, the, the, I'll just mention one other thing that, um, like everybody else in this literature, and I start by talking about a single model and a single target, and that's mostly where we've uh, spent our time. But one of the things that I, I have I do try to do in the book, and that I think that we should all think about some more is. That's not the way that it usually works in science. We usually use a model to describe a kind of broad class of systems. Sometimes we use models to describe systems we don't know whether they exist or not. Sometimes we use models to describe systems we know don't exist. So I think really there's a one of the nice things about the modeling enterprise is it's a very flexible sort of thing. We can do all kinds of cool investigations. We can ask questions about three-sex biology, or we can ask questions about perpetual motion machines, where obviously traditional theories... Uh, don't let us do so much about that. So that's, I think that's one of the cool things about modeling. I think it's something cool that I've tried to work on. Hope it's something that's inspired other people. But so thank you for asking. Okay. Um, well, thank you for talking with us today. It was a great pleasure. Okay. Um, so we'll uh, look forward to seeing your future work. Thank you. Pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with Michael Weisberg, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. We've been talking about his new book, Simulation and Similarity, Using Models to Understand the World, just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.